Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about listening. It's been said that we evaluate our ability to listen, much like we evaluate our ability to drive a car. We grossly overestimate our skills. To help us discover what it means to listen deeply, I'm joined by the leading expert in this space, Oscar Trimboli. Oscar told me that when it comes to solving problems, we need to listen not just to the symptoms, but to the system. And to do that, we need to listen beyond the words. Today, I give him a call to find out just how to do that. Joining me on the phone is Oscar Trimboli. Oscar is an author, host of the Apple award-winning podcast, Deep Listening, and a sought-after keynote speaker. He's passionate about using the gift of listening to bring positive changes in homes, workplaces, and cultures around the world. Through his work with chairs, boards of directors, and executive teams in local, regional, and global organizations, Oscar has experienced firsthand the transformational impact leaders and organizations can have when they listen beyond the words. He believes that leadership teams need to focus their attention and their listening on building organizations that have impact and create powerful legacies for the people they serve today and more importantly for future generations. Oscar is a marketing and technology industry veteran with over 30 years experience across general management, sales, marketing and operations for organizations like Microsoft, PeopleSoft, Polycom, Professional Advantage and Vodafone. It's an absolute privilege to have him with me on the podcast today. Oscar, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. G'day Shane. Looking forward to listening to your questions today. I um, We crossed paths a number of years ago, and I remember literally one of the very first conversations I had with you. I didn't even quite know you that well. You gave me a piece of um, advice, like almost instantly, and I was like, this is so helpful. You, I've just known you to be a kind of a helpful person, so I can't wait to kind of unpack uh, who you are, what you do, and all those things in a moment. But one of the things we do in the podcast is always kick off with three fast facts, just to get to know you a little bit better, which is, um, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Well, I was, I was born in Bankstown, grew up in Liverpool. Went to school at Fairfield and went to school with 23 different nationalities, which set me up really well in life. Uh, At that stage in life, there were people coming from Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, uh, people from Eastern Europe and also from South America, all fleeing wars. And uh, it was a a fantastic melting pot of modern Australia. Uh, The suburb next to the school was Villawood and it was called the Villawood Immigration Centre. And today it's called the Villawood Detention Centre. It tells you something interesting about our orientation to migrants in the five decades since then. My first job was a concreter. I started concreting at the age of five with my dad and I went on his work sites and did everything from collecting nails to getting the lunch orders to shouting at the uh, concrete drivers that they hadn't left a docker behind for the job. And what that did was set me up really well because I learned how professionalism shows up in craftsmen in, in workplaces that you wouldn't think. So for concreting, if you don't get the foundations right in your building, you're in a lot of trouble. And my dad would often... Uh, labour through the day with uh, three or four other workers, all migrants, or broken English for most of them, 
but they all turned up every day, very professional in their work. And if there was uh, a mistake they could see that was on the plans, maybe from an architect, uh, they'd pull the builder up pretty quickly and point it out and they'd have to adjust real time. They were incredibly colorful arguments. <laughs> uh, I must say my vocabulary widened dramatically as a result of that. And uh, I guess from a very early age or a school age, I never really got to do the holiday thing. People talked about this mythical thing called the beach. When I was on holidays, I, I went to labouring sites and work sites and factory sites. So for uh, until I was 18, I didn't know what a beach was or went to a beach, despite the fact I grew up in Australia. Today, um, you know, in 2008, I was lucky enough that my vice president pointed out while I was in a, a work environment, setting budgets between Singapore, Seattle, and Sydney. At the 20 minute mark, Tracy said to me, I need to see you immediately after this meeting. And I thought I was getting fired. Uh, the meeting finished early and she asked me to close the door. And as I walked across from closing the door, she said, you have no idea what you did at the 20 minute mark. And I thought, I'm getting fired and I don't even know what I did. And when I sat down, she said, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And in that moment of very profound insight on Tracy's part about the impact of her listening amazingly well to me, the only thing going through my head, Shane, was <laughs> I haven't been <laughs> fired. So that's what I do today. I'm on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world. But what I'm most curious about is, was the device that I gave you way back then useful? I love that. The inclination for me is that if you're on a mission to create a hundred million deep listeners, is that potentially maybe we're not by default deep listeners? Ironically, we are. At 32 weeks inside your mum's tummy, uh, the very first skill you learned was to listen to your mother. And at 34 weeks, you could listen to music. So... Before you were born, you were, you were a deep listener. Unfortunately, as you come into the world, you come into the world kicking and screaming and making lots of noise. <laughs> and then you get a lot of people telling you about running a marathon with only one leg. That's one half of communication, which is speaking, speaking with influence, speaking with power, speaking with conviction, whichever version of a speaking training program you want to talk about. Don't get me wrong. They have their place and they're critical. The best listening cultures are the best storytelling cultures. So you, you need to be able to be a powerful communicator when you're leading a team. But although you spend a minimum half your day listening in the workplace, and the more senior you are, the more of your day you spend listening, working with boards and executive teams, they're spending up to 83% of their day listening. And their listening is more consequential if you miss something at a very senior level. There's a big system implication. But if you're working with folks day to day and you've got regular one-on-ones with people, listening is the other part of the conversation. And I'm curious if half your professional development time is spent improving your listening or is it on something else as well? So when you're on a quest for 100 million deep listeners in the world, uh, it's a quest I know I'll never achieve, but it just sets an ambition level for the goal because I think as Malcolm Gladwell said, if you can get 3% of a population doing something, you get to a tipping point where it becomes self-sustaining. 
over time. I'm, I'm glad you touched on the idea of speaking because I mean, my, my first book was all around lead the room, which was a lot around that side of communication. And when I was asked after writing the book, uh, I was in a invited to join a collective project where basically they asked a whole lot of communication professionals around the world, what's your number one piece of communication advice? And I had just finished writing lead the room, but all I could think to say was good leaders know how to speak and great leaders know when not to, because there was this piece that I felt like was really missing. And it's the, it's the piece that you're talking about is that we often focus a lot of our attention and time on how do I be a great speaker? And probably less time focusing on how to be a great listener. I mean, is is that your experience? I mean, there's obviously a market for what you do. So, do we not spend a lot of time on teaching people to listen? Ironically, for all the leaders you've ever worked for, and for those of you listening right now, the leader you remember the most is the one that listened to you. They listen beyond the words. They listen to your fears, your aspirations. They listen to what you didn't say, yet you think about all the change initiatives you've been asked to drive, all the stories from leaders you've been told, very few of them are as memorable as the moment when somebody takes that time to listen deeply to what you haven't said, to what you want to express but haven't been given the opportunity to. So I want to be clear, it's about balancing speaking and listening. 50% of communication is speaking. 50% is listening. And listening is situational. It's relational and it's contextual. You'll listen differently to your manager than you'll listen to a direct report. You'll listen differently to your peers than you will to a police officer. You'll listen differently to a regulator than you will to a supplier, for example. But based on your relationship, is it a long-term trusted relationship? You'll listen differently in that context than you will if you're onboarding a brand new staff member onto your team, for example. You'll listen differently in an interview than you will in a restructure meeting. So listening is nuanced and, and subtle, a bit like agadashi tofu for those of you who love Japanese food, this beautiful, deep textured broth. And listening's a lot like that. Think of your favorite minestrone soup as well. And same ingredients. You can have a terrible soapy minestrone soup, or you can have a beautiful flavorsome soup, which will leave taste buds tingling, but also create a memorable experience. And I think, Shane, there's three things that I would love everybody to know about listening that most people don't. 125, 400, and 900. These numbers, if you know these numbers, you will understand the recipe to great listening. So 125 is speaking speed. You can speak at about 125 to 150 words per minute. A horse race caller or an auctioneer, they speak at about 200 words per minute. And if you understand their accent and the domain, you'll still be able to comprehend. In fact, we know blind people can listen to audiobooks at three times speed and retain complete comprehension. So number one, speaking speed. Number two is the thinking speed of the speaker. 900 words per minute you can think at. And now if you work in complex, collaborative, constrained environments with conflict, you'll probably be thinking up to 1,600 words per minute. Wow. Therefore, if you just listen to the very first thing somebody says, you're listening effectively to 14% of what they're thinking. Now, 
for people like Shane, who's a rock star and very eloquent, rehearsed, yeah, maybe the first thing they say in one in three cases is what they think. But for the rest of us out here in the real world, you are playing a game of roulette. You're gambling with 14% of what somebody thinks. And then you wonder why, hmm, I'm not sure they understood what I said. Or you have a work in progress meeting with your team and they come back and said, yeah, I delivered that. And the other team member says, no, that's not what I asked you to do. So if you understand the 125-900 rule, the differential between the speaker's speaking speed and their thinking speed, you'll understand that the most important thing you need to listen to is what's not said. If you listen to what's not said, you can start to listen to what they think, but more importantly, to what they mean. Now, there's a number I jumped, and I did that deliberately. The number's 400. 400 words per minute is your listening speed, and you're listening to this right now, and I'm not speaking fast enough for you. And as a consequence, your mind will drift. You'll try and place yourself in situations where you haven't listened to somebody. Your mind might have gone to a work-in-progress meeting, or your mind might have gone to your nonna's house and thought about the minestrone soup and still stayed there. I know it's happening for you right now because you're listening to this while probably doing something else. A lot of people say, Oscar, how do I stop being distracted? And I say, sometimes that's not the useful question. The useful question is, how do I notice my distraction quicker? And for most people, the biggest distractions are external. The distractions are electronic. They are digital watches. They're mobile phones. They're iPads, tablets, and computers. From our deep listening research of over 18,000 workplace listeners, 86% of them say the one tip we give them in the workshop is switch off your notifications, which in all operating systems is one button. If you switch off their notifications, they say they can tune in and stay in the conversation much longer. Now that we've distracted Everybody listening, Shane, <laughs> what has those three numbers got you thinking? I've been reflecting again, like part of this is when you start saying something, I have to really intentionally catch my brain to try and not let it wander off down to the experiences that I've had with this and trying to stay present in this conversation as well. But the thing I think about is when I'm working with a team and we, we run this exercise, which is essentially allowing a person to speak for two minutes and have the other person essentially not be able to either online come off mute or in person say anything at all. And they've got to sit there in silence and they have to just listen to a person share about an experience or a memorable story or something like that for two minutes. And what I love watching is the person who is staying silent, trying to resist the urge to say something, to try and affirm the person, encourage the person, do something like that. But more importantly, the person who's sharing struggle to share for two minutes uninterrupted. And I'm wondering, you know, is it that our life is consistently interrupted so much by somebody else speaking that two minutes feels like a long time uninterrupted? I mean, what are your thoughts? Why, why do people have that overwhelming sense of, I've got nothing left to say because I'm not, I'm not getting anything back from you. Why do people feel like that? Just take me into the context in the setup. What's the question you ask people to explain. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of questions. One of my favorite goes to go to questions is, um, what is one of your most 
proudest achievements. Um, so that naturally will have some degree of feeling uncomfortable about talking about themselves. Other times it could be tell the person about your favorite holiday that you've been on. Uh, it's really just anything at all that gets a story out of that person. Uh, but generally they last 30 to 45 seconds and then they're not getting anything back from the other person and they're going, oh, this feels uncomfortable. And they have to kind of share more and they go into more detail and then more detail um, trying to fill up the two minutes. Yeah, well, we do a version of that, but we do it for five minutes. Wow. And the, the question, <laughs> wow. the, and this is why the context matters. So if you're listening in right now, neither approach is right or wrong. Well, I'll just tell you about a different approach and you can steal whatever ideas you want out of this. We set it up to say coming up. So we talk about something that's coming up for the person, not something that's been. So that's the first distinction in the way the exercise is set up. I'm not sure this means that you talk longer or less, but we know we've done, we've done this exercise with about 25,000 people globally in workshops. So there, there are some really significant patterns that we talk about. And the setup is simple. In the next 72 hours, talk about a conversation that is something you're going to struggle with. So again, it's future orientated and it's struggle orientated. The setup is for three minutes, your counterpart, and there may be two, typically, we typically do these in triads, not pairs. For the first three minutes, they will listen in complete silence. And then after the three minute mark, they can only ask you one question. And the question will be, tell me more. You can't offer suggestions. You can't correct. You can't, none of that. And what's really interesting is 80% of the listeners kind of get to the, they're just busting, looking at the clock going, I'm going to say, tell me more. 20% of the listeners don't say anything the whole time. Now, what's common for the speaker in that scenario is this. Most of them can talk for way more than five minutes. Where they start in their description of the problem is completely different to where they finish. And they typically generate between two and three different solutions to their own problem without any prompting from the listener. So the point is simple. Two minutes doesn't get them to say what necessarily they're thinking. So if you think about the 125-4-900 rule, in that case, 125 at 125. My suspicion is they're trying to pick the best 125 each time, right? Mm. As opposed to just get it out. So, so for me, I love your approach because my suspicion is it's designed to connect the participants in the workshop. In our workshop, it's, it's designed to progress. It, mm. It's to help the both role model good listening. Now, you're not going to stay silent in a workplace meeting, but the point everybody makes is, oh my God, I didn't realize if I just shut up, most of the time these people are going to come to their own conclusions anyway. And particularly if you're frontline managing and all of that, a lot of the time you kind of come from an expert role and you get promoted. Your role is to be an expert in leading the team, not to be solving problems. Mm. And if you can just ask three simple questions, which is tell me more 
and what else? And the third question is the shortest of all, the simplest of all, but the least used and the most powerful. And here it is. Now, don't worry. Shane's buttons didn't move on the recording. There's no coincidence that silent and listen share the identical letters. Again, in the West, we say the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. In the East, China, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, in high-context cultures, in the Australian indigenous communities, Maori, Polynesian cultures, Inuit cultures, which are the Eskimos of North America, all these high-context cultures, the leader's seniority is defined not by what they say, but how they hold the silence. And silence is a sign of wisdom, it's a sign of seniority, and it's a sign of respect to the group or, or the other person in the conversation. Remember, we were born great listeners. So for a lot of us, it's just unlearning things that we've absorbed through our listening teachers. So when you went to school, Shane, I'm sure you had a listening teacher. You went to a listening class. You learn all about listening because that's 50% of what you do, right? No. Your listening teacher were your parents and probably your teachers at school. And they taught you by example. So we probably always pick up a lot of interesting habits from those around us. In the absence of being taught how to listen, this is how we show up and listen. I think about my, my experiences growing up, it was always around, um, yeah, it was people who would stand at the front of a, an environment, whether that was a dinner table, it was a classroom, it was university lectures, it was conferences and events. And it was always around listening to a person who shared their ideas. And then as a emerging leader, aspiring to be someone who had some thoughts worth sharing. And so I guess then you get promoted into leadership. Maybe you take on your first leadership role and you have worked so hard at becoming good at what you do, um, that you've got some thoughts and you've got some things to share. And so now imagine you find yourself in a position of leadership. The temptation is to then be, you know, the team's problem solver. So everyone has a, as a problem, they bring it to you. You're the fount of all wisdom. You solve everyone's problems. So you probably spend most of your days speaking and sharing your ideas and sharing your thoughts. Is what I'm hearing in this conversation about finding a balance? Because I can't imagine it would be about ignoring some of the experience and expertise and wisdom of leadership, right? It's potentially about bringing a greater balance to that. When you're promoted into a team leadership role, you have made a conscious decision to change professions. It's like a lawyer becoming an accountant, a doctor becoming a police officer. But most people don't realize they've made a conscious choice to change professions. Now, a lot of people go, well, if I made a conscious choice to change professions, surely I'll show up differently. You made a conscious choice to apply for the role. You made a conscious decision to accept the role. And you've made a conscious decision to be a team leader. You need to learn a new profession. And the professional skills that you have as a team leader are informed by your experience and your expertise. But be under no misapprehension that half of the skills you brought as an expert are no longer relevant. You aren't paid to be the smartest in the room. 
You are paid to make other people smarter than you. You are paid to make your team exponential, not just a series of ingredients that add up to the same outcome as if you weren't there. So I guess the point, Shane, is when you make this choice to become a leader, move your mindset from a knower to a learner. And the learning you have to do is learning the new profession. And the new profession is about setting clear goals. It is about navigating change across the organization as well as your team. And it's about understanding how to effectively delegate whilst maintaining accountability. Now, there are very few experts who have those skills in their kit bag when they come from an engineering background, they come from an accounting background, an IT background, whatever your professional expertise is. These, these skills need to be learned and you need to commit for at least a period of three years to go, I've changed professions, therefore I need a very serious professional development plan. And one of those elements of the professional development plan is to be able to listen around corners, to listen to what's not said, because here's some bad news. When you become a manager for the first time, all your friends, all those people which will tell you the truth in the cafeteria, in the coffee shop, all of a sudden, they tell you what you want to hear rather than what they want to say. So listening becomes really, really crucial in setting you and your team up for success because you need to go east and west, north and south. The days of you just looking after your own task are gone and you need a compass that's a full 360 degree view of the organization. So in that context, it's really critical that you decide you've changed professions and build a professional development plan to support that. That's the big thing that I really um, resonate with and, and taking away from that is if you were to put yourself in that position and go, let's take you out of accounting and put you into the police force, or let's take you out of here and put you into there. The transition is obvious and apparent that there's a skill set that needs to be developed and learned, but potentially people who might be listening, that's a bit of a wake up call. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've actually changed. And there's a, there's a, a set of skills that comes with the position that I'm in now that I actually need to learn. So there's an element, what I'm hearing is, is learning to listen, but it's not because you say we already, we're kind of all born, born with that skill. So it's almost learning to listen again or learning to listen what you would say deeply. So are, are we going back to something and is it a skill that you develop? Is it like any other skill? Like, is it something you practice? Like, how do you listen? It comes back to the mindset. Are you a learner or a knower? Mm. You know, the expert knows everything. The learner approaches every task with a curiosity and an open mind. If you're in a one-on-one, a, -on -one, a regular one-on-one -on -one with one of your direct reports and they bring you a problem, the, the biggest temptation is to fix it. A and you could, mm. and you might, it may be appropriate, depending on the skill level and motivation of the team member, you will adjust your approach accordingly. Yeah, quite often when you listen in this transactional way, you're listening for symptoms. You're not listening for the system that you're part of. Remember, full 360 degrees now. 
I was brought into a quality issue in an engineering context in a pharmaceutical company. So life and death, if the stuff they put in the tubes has got some kind of impurity in it, it's getting injected into people's bodies, people might die. So there's a lot at risk here. Now, what was happening is very infrequently, there were impurities coming up in the production line. Production would have to be halted. Quality would get involved. And then they'd start up again with it because the impurity went away. Now, what's happening really inconsistently? What you need to understand in this context is every time you stop the production line, it's about a million dollars of stock every day. So $365 million worth of stock if you stopped the line for a year. So they stopped it for 10 days. You can do the maths. It's $10 million and all that stock has to get destroyed because they don't know what the root cause of the issue is. For weeks and weeks and weeks, the managers will go back to their teams and ask a series of questions defined by this well-known process called the Six Sigma process, which is a quality improvement process. And they kept asking why, what, how, when, why, all these W questions and a how question. And this is great. You're listening in a really transactional way. They hadn't solved it, so I got brought into a room of 95 people managers that, because they had shut down the whole plant, basically trying to solve this problem. I got brought in to try and fix it. Now, what you don't know about me is I know nothing about quality. I am a Six Sigma black belt, but that's a story for another day. Uh, I don't know anything about engineering, and I definitely know nothing about pharmaceuticals, right? So I know nothing about what's going on. I'm literally being brought into this group to sort this out. And I asked the group, somebody from the group to explain. So there's 90-odd people in this room. And it's quite tense because there's a lot of money at stake, but more importantly, uh, there's a lot of medication at stake for people who aren't getting it. And I simply asked them, who are we listening to right now in your process? And they said, well, we aren't, we aren't listening to the production workers. Okay. I said, if we did, what would they say? Well, we don't know. We haven't spoken to them. I go, great. I'm going to stop this workshop, go and talk to the production workers. And we came back next week. Now, in that moment, I could have gone and done a wonderful sticky note exercise and clustered everything and get a root cause analysis. But that was listening at a very transactional symptomatic level. I needed to listen at the symptom. One of the questions is, who are we listening to? It could be customers, could be call center operators. Typically, it's people right at the very, very front line. So they went and listened to the front line. There was a 62-year-old Maori that they spoke to who said, three months ago, I told you this pipe was rusty. You told me we couldn't afford to do an unplanned maintenance because there's a million dollars worth of stock going across here. I think it's this rusty pipe here that's causing the issues. Sure enough, it was the rusty pipe. Sure enough, he'd reported it through all the quality processes. Sure enough, he was ignored. 
Now, in that moment where I simply asked, who are we listening to? What are we listening to? Is the 125-900 rule applied at a really big level? Now, remember, it was a learner, not a knower who turned up in the room. I could have taught them for the best part of six days on listening techniques. But the simple question was, who are you listening to? And in that moment, it was a question to the group, not my ability to teach them about listening, that solved the problem. Sure enough, it took three days, shut down the pipe, sort it all out, put the production line on back together again. And the reason the original problem was inconsistent was the rust was flaking off at an inconsistent rate. So they couldn't kind of necessarily diagnose where it was. But the answer was right in front of everybody's face. And I didn't have the answer. My role was just to listen to the group. Now, what was really funny about that is that was a three-hour workshop that finished in 17 minutes. The most useful thing I could have done is let them go and listen to the system, all the frontline production workers. And they learned a really valuable lesson around that. Now that's part of their integrated quality process. And one of the questions that executives asks is, which frontline issues, quality tickets, haven't we resolved in 14 days? I guess the point of the story is, Shane, as a leader in that moment, your job is to help the group answer its own questions. I know nothing about quality. I know nothing about engineering. I definitely don't know anything about pharmaceuticals. And I did the same approach working with a group of actuaries in financial services around a pricing issue they had around life insurance. I surely know nothing about all those topics again. And I simply asked exactly the same question. Who are we listening to? And the answer in that case was the brokers, the intermediaries, the people who sold the life insurance. Sure enough, over three months by listening to the brokers, they got the resolution there. So as a manager with your team, your job sometimes is to answer their questions, but mostly it's to help them explore their thinking fully. If you were having a one-on-one and somebody brought you a problem, Shane, the number one question I would ask in that context is always this. Tell me about what you've thought through already. Because quite often the solution that a people manager wants to provide is something that the person's already thought about. Now, what's that got you thinking as you hear that? Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the biggest things that I hear when I'm talking to managers running one-on-ones with their teams. The, the feeling is, if I'm not there to solve their problems, well, what am I there for? And so whenever we're having conversations about this, the feedback or the kickback that I get on this is, but what if they say, well, that's why I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you to solve the problem. Like, that's what you get paid for. Why am I doing your job for you? And they're a little bit anxious about that. Is that a, is that a real concern? Like, is that, you know, what, what, what would you say to that? It depends. So think about your employees through a very simple matrix of high skill, low skill, high motivation, low motivation. If the person has low skill, your job is still not to answer their question. Your role is to provide a framework for them to think it through so they can understand how to approach it next time, as opposed to, I hate this question, 
So what do you think? Right? Mm. Well, listen, boss, I've been thinking a lot and I can't solve it. So, you know, throw me a bone here as opposed to, hey, Shane, in that context of, of the problem, if we were just to take a step back for a moment and think about it internally and externally and the consequences for each, and then the cost for each of your solutions, you know, is, a, is one approach going to be taking us a long time and a lot of internal resources, or is it just a short-term resource? Where would you put it in those four areas? So Shane says, oh, look, I, th I think it's probably something that's relatively short-term, but requires a lot of resourcing. Okay. If it, and can you see we've helped them think through a framework rather than throw them something that's really open. If the employee was highly skilled, been in their role for a long time and highly motivated, we'd ask a slightly different question. And this is known as the skill will matrix. It's called situational leadership. You need to be able to adjust your questioning and listening based on where they're at, not a robotic vanilla response to every member of your team. You need to lead your longer term, more tenured employees very differently than newer employees or people have been for the organization a long time, but it may have transitioned into your team. So their skill level is different. So your role as a leader is to think about this. Your job is to make yourself redundant that this team could problem solve without you. If you think your role is to be present and part of every decision, then you will be a great manager for life but you're not doing a lot of leading. Now, there are situations where it does require a manager to give answers to the question. Um, we've got a problem. The call center is shut down and we have an overflow problem in the call center. What do we do, boss? This is not your time for intergalactic frameworks. You need to get very tactical very quickly and provide very quick. In the next hour, we need to do this. Before lunchtime, we need to do this. And after lunch, we're going to do that. Tomorrow we'll regroup, but right now, is everybody clear on what they need to do? Great, let's go. So again, the context, the context matters when the situation is kind of really, really tight. The trouble is everybody who gets stuck in transactional management thinks every situation is a meltdown in the contact center. And more often than not, it's not. Oscar, this is such a helpful conversation because I think it, it balances this idea of staying in that space of curiosity, which is being the learner. And at the same time, recognizing that it's, it's, there are going to be times when you do have to step into that space as the knower, which is, hey, what are we going to do? We need to make a quick decision here. And I, I do have that responsibility. Because I think at, on one side, you can get caught up in that. My job is just 100% listen. And 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 it, there are times where we can actually give our advice. And I know Michael Bungay-Stanier in his book always talks about that if you're going to give advice, just make sure it's good advice. Um, but I'm mindful of our time. As we kind of bring the podcast into close, there's already super practical things that you've given people throughout this, just in terms of silence and the questions that you could be asking. I mean, if I gave you, you're a listening person. If I gave you a soapbox to stand on as a speaker and uh, you just said in the next 60 seconds, you could be speaking to leaders 
uh, especially frontline managers right now, and you could stand on a soapbox about the concept of listening, what would you be saying to those people right now? Managers, listen to what's said, and leaders, listen to what's not said. Now, I know that's not 60 seconds, but when you listen effectively, you get a whole day in your schedule back because the conversations that you listen to matter, are meaningful, you're dealing with the root cause issues. There isn't a lot of rework because the team is listening to yourselves. So remember the 125-900 rule, listen more to what's not said rather than listening to what is said. Oscar, it's fantastic. Super, super helpful. Um, and I know one of the things I love about you is you really do put a lot of intentionality and effort into listening to the people in your audience, the people that you've worked with, the people that this is going to help. And you've done a whole lot of that research in the lead up to your book on how to listen. Um, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about some of the, the background that's gone into some of this work? For me, listening is a skill, it's a practice, it's a strategy. A lot of people, when I do workshops, say to me, Oscar, lots of great facts, all of that, but I learn more from watching you. I learned from the fact that you, every time somebody asked a question, you always said, has anybody else got that issue? To understand it, is it a group issue or is it an individual issue? But writing a book about listening, for me, was somebody approached me and said, you need to write a really substantial, the most comprehensive book on listening in the workplace. I said, thanks, Ingrid, no problem. I think I need to go and listen to everybody I've worked with. And then we did some really significant work. If I was practicing what I preach, I went and listened to two and a half thousand people who don't listen to me, listen to the unsaid listen to the voices I haven't heard before and do some research there. And we tested book titles with them. We tested chapters with them. We tested chapter outlines with them. We tested stories with them. We got them into workshops of 15 people online and showed them a key story or a frame from the book. And this book that was supposed to be written really, really quickly. Eventually, uh, I just paused and said, I need to listen to my community. Uh, they call themselves the Deep Listening Ambassadors. And the Deep Listening Ambassadors basically came up with a much simpler, much clearer, more elegant version of the most comprehensive book on how to listen. So for me, that was a beautiful example of being the learner, not the knower. And, and what I learned from that, that we translate into your role as a leader, lead the process, not the content. If you can work with that. And for me, it was always to ele elevate myself and remember who's reading this book. And the book reader was Renee. And it would, would this story resonate with Renee? And that came to setting a really clear, clear definition of who the reader is. But more importantly, what, what was she struggling with as well? Amazing. I, I honestly, it's, it's going to be one of the most helpful things for leaders. Um, it really will be. And what's the best way for people to be able to, I mean, get their hands on it, to be able to connect with you? What's the best way to, to stay in touch with all of the work that you're doing around listening and deep listening around the world? Or, or honestly, staying in touch with me is interesting, but I'd rather 
something be useful for you. So listen to yourself. Go to listeningquiz.com, answer 20 questions, and it'll tell you your primary listening barriers and you'll get a report that explains what to do about it. And if you choose to, from then to stay in touch, you'll already have the information to do it. But visit listeningquiz.com and learn more about your own listening rather than listening to me. That's <laughs> fantastic. I'll put all the details into the show notes. And Oscar, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Even in this interview, I, I watch the way that you engage and the way that you listen and also for sharing some really, really practical resources with people. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.